The sermon text for today is Luke 1, 67 through 80. Luke 1, 67 through 80. Before we go to that text, we will read from Psalm 132. Our custom is to read from the Old Testament and the New. Most Lord's Days. Psalm 132, Luke 1, 67 through 80. The title for today's sermon is, He Has Visited and Redeemed His People. First, Psalm 132, hear now the reading of God's most holy word. A song of ascents. This was a psalm that would be sung by the people of God as they journeyed up, ascended uh, to Jerusalem to worship. A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your son keeps my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach him, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread, her priests. I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I, will, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Let us go now to the New Testament reading and our sermon text, Luke 1, 67-80. Luke 1, 67. And his father Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people, and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew 
and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he bless the preaching of it this morning. Over the years, I've come to really love and appreciate this story about Zechariah the priest. Near the end of the sermon last Sunday, I suggested to you that perhaps Luke intends for us to see Zechariah as a kind of model or example of one who was moved from a place of doubt to a place of confidence and certainty concerning Jesus the Messiah. So Luke introduces his gospel to us in this way. He presents uh, the reason for his writing, that we might have certainty. And the very first character that he presents to us is this Zechariah. He at first doubts, but he is rather quickly moved to a place of certainty. I wonder if he is not a model or example uh, for us. We must remember that Luke tells us his purpose for writing in chapter 1 verse 4. He says that he wrote this gospel so that those who read it may have certainty concerning the things they have been taught. Luke wants us to grow in our certainty, and we might ask, certainty about what? Uh, The answer is clearly this, given the context. The certainty that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah that God had promised to send. Luke wrote his gospel so that we would be certain about that, and I do find it fascinating that the very first person Luke introduces to us in his gospel is this old covenant priest named Zechariah. He and his wife Elizabeth are said to be righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And yet when the news comes to Zechariah that the Messiah was about to be born and that he would have a son who would prepare the way for him in fulfillment to the Scriptures, what did he do? He doubted. Luke wrote his gospel so that we might, know in, that, that we might grow in our certainty. And the very first character he introduces to us is a man that you would expect to have strong faith and certainty, Zechariah the priest, a man upright and righteous, and yet he doubts. And you know how the story progresses. Zechariah was struck with muteness because he doubted. The word of God delivered to him by the angel Gabriel. He was unable to speak for about nine months, and when he did regain his ability to speak, he did not regain it progressively, nor did he regain it at a random moment, but At a very specific point in time, on the eighth day after his son was born, as they came to circumcise him, specifically, his tongue was loosed only after he obeyed the word of the Lord in the naming of his child. Nine months earlier, the angel Gabriel had said to him, You shall call his name John. And it was only after Zechariah wrote the words, with boldness, I think, His name is John, that his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke. What did he do? He blessed God, the text says, and today we will be considering the prophecy that Zechariah uttered after this experience. One thing should be very clear to all, he was no longer doubting, but was very, very certain that the Messiah was about to be born, and that his son, miraculously born to his wife Elizabeth in her old age, would prepare the way for him. One thing that should be clear to all, as we read this prophecy of Zechariah, is that he is a man who is now bold and strong in his certainty concerning Jesus the Messiah. When I say that Zechariah is a model for those who doubt or lack certainty 
concerning what God did through Jesus the Messiah. I mean that we are invited to walk the road that Zechariah walked. Now, I very much doubt that those who lack certainty today will be struck with muteness as Zechariah was. Nevertheless, those who doubt, those who are plagued by doubt, those who are struggling with doubt, should, one, hold their tongues lest they speak unfaithfully. Two, they should consider the things that happened when Jesus Christ was brought into the world, lived, died, rose again, and ascended. They should consider the facts, the miraculous things that happened in those days. Three, they should study and reflect on the Holy Scriptures. Yes, the New Testament, but especially the Old. For the Old Testament Scriptures spoke of this Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, before He was born. You know, brothers and sisters, I've been very blessed to meet with our middle and high school age students on most Wednesday nights. Some of you know that I've been doing this. Um, What do we do when we gather together on Wednesday nights? We review the sermons from the previous Lord's Day. I say sermons because two are preached each Lord's Day. A morning sermon that is typically expositional and then a catechetical sermon in the afternoon. And we review those sermons with our young people. By the way... We are very blessed with uh, some very wonderful young people in our congregation, brothers and sisters. We should thank God for that. Um, But I do find this time to be very encouraging, and I think it is beneficial to them. Uh, They are reminded of what was preached a few days earlier, and it is amazing how easy it is for us, even adults, to forget what was preached uh, even the day before or two days before. It's easy to forget. And we should be disciplined to remember the things that were preached. I'm able to clarify what was preached and to also encourage application. Uh, Yes, parents do this in the home. I'm sure it's a blessing uh, to do it as a pastor. I'll get to the point now. (laughs) One comment I made to them this past Wednesday is that we must learn to read the Bible as great literature. The Bible, please hear me, is certainly more than great literature. It is God's inspired word. It is sacred scripture. But it is not less than great literature. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, each book is masterfully written. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all of the books of the Bible fit together to tell one unified story. Scripture is filled with truth, for it is God's word to us. It is also very beautiful Literarily speaking, as we were reviewing the sermon from last Sunday, this past Wednesday night with these students, I I asked them, who likes to read novels? And a few of them raised their hands. And then I asked them, when you read a great novel, or when you watch a good movie, what are some of the things that you look for to fully appreciate and understand the story that is being told? Their answers were great. They said they pay attention to the setting context, themes, the introduction and development of characters, etc. I agreed with them and I said, you need to read the Bible in the same way, for although the Bible is certainly more than a great piece of literature, it is not less than that. So what is the theme that is introduced to us at the beginning of Luke's Gospel? Answer, it is the theme of being moved from a place of doubt to a place of certainty. Certainty that Jesus, the Son of Mary, is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God incarnate, the Savior of the world. 
Luke wrote for this purpose, to move Theophilus and all who read this gospel to a place of certainty concerning the things that have been taught about Jesus. Note the theme. Pay attention to it. It's significant. And who is the first character that Luke introduces to us? It is Zechariah. And how is he presented? As a priest, a righteous and blameless priest, who of all people should have had strong faith and certainty, but he doubts. But does he remain in his doubt? The answer is this. No. Through his silent reflection upon, one, the things that had happened, two, the Old Testament Scriptures, and what they have to say regarding the coming Messiah, he emerges from his time of muteness as a man strong, confident, and certain in his faith. He wrote, his name is John Boldly. He blessed the Lord. And when he uttered this beautiful and Scripture-saturated prophecy, which we will be considering today, he does so strongly and boldly. He confesses that this Jesus is the promised Messiah. My point is this. Luke did not compile his gospel in a haphazard way. None of the scriptures are compiled in a haphazard way. It is not as if Luke sat down to write and he just began to to ramble about the things that happened in these days. No, he produced a beautiful piece of literature for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He did this for a very particular purpose to move his readers along to have strong faith in Jesus the Christ, the promised Messiah. Everything he writes must be interpreted in light of this clearly expressed purpose. And before we go to the text for today, I have one more brief observation to make concerning Luke's gospel as a beautifully compiled and focused piece of literature. I have shown you how Luke's gospel begins. I have shown you that this theme of being moved from doubt to certainty uh, comes to us at the very beginning. Uh, But I want you to notice that Luke concludes his gospel in the very same way. At the end of Luke's gospel, we will find an account of Jesus' crucifixion and burial. We will see that His disciples were left perplexed, discouraged, and doubting. But Christ rose from the grave, and He appeared to them. And when He did, He moved His disciples from a place of doubt to a place of certainty. How did Christ so move them? How did He convince them beyond a shadow of doubt that He was the promised Messiah and Redeemer of God's elect? How did He accomplish this? He moved them from doubt to certainty in the very same way that Zechariah was moved by presenting them with, one, the facts concerning the miraculous things that had happened, the most miraculous thing of all being His resurrection from the dead on the third day. He appeared to them and said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. That is Luke 24, 38 through 43. So, can you see it, brothers and sisters? The disciples were moved from a place of doubt and despair to a place of faith and certainty by considering the miraculous things that had happened 
the greatest of them being the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But that is not all that Jesus did. He did not merely appear to them to prove that He was risen. What else did He do to give them certainty? Note this very carefully. He showed them how the Old Testament Scriptures spoke of Him and the things that had been accomplished by Him, which were predicted ahead of time. With the exception of the brief account of the ascension of Christ, Luke's Gospel concludes with these words. Then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Do you hear it? Jesus opened up the Scriptures to them. He said, Look, I am risen from the dead. Look at my hands, look at my feet, look at what has happened, look at the miraculous thing that has been accomplished. This should be proof to you that I am the promised Messiah. But He did not only say, look at my hands and feet, He said, look at the Scriptures. Look at the Old Testament and the way in which they predict that all of these things would happen through prophecies, promises, types, and shadows. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Witnesses of what? What are these disciples of Christ to be witnesses of? What are they to testify to? Two things. The facts, He is risen, and the fact that He came to accomplish and fulfill the Scriptures, things written previously. Brothers and sisters, I think that this is such an important uh, concept to, to know and to understand. Uh, this is how Luke sought to move Theophilus from a place perhaps of doubt to certainty. This is how he seeks to move us from doubt to certainty, by telling us about the miraculous things that had happened, but also by showing us that Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, did all of these things in fulfillment to the Old Testament Scriptures, which were written long before He ever came. You know, brothers and sisters, it is one thing for a virgin to conceive and bear a son. That is miraculous. That should get your attention. But it is another thing altogether for this to happen in fulfillment to the Scriptures which were written hundreds of years earlier. Isaiah the prophet said, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel. That is Isaiah 7.14. The two things combined, the fact of the virgin birth in combination with the fulfillment of the prophecies previously made, are set before us in Luke's Gospel that this Jesus was the promised Messiah. It's proven in this way. He is the Savior and Redeemer of all who have faith in Him. And it is one thing for this same man who was virgin born to also be raised from the dead on the third day. And if this fact does not get your attention, I don't know what will. But it is another thing for the Old Testament Scriptures to predict that the Messiah would suffer, die, and rise, and for it to happen in fulfillment of things previously written. The two things combined, the fact that the miracles happened and the fact that they happened in fulfillment of the Scriptures previously written are set before us by Luke to move us to greater certainty 
that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. You know, to illustrate the point to our youth last Wednesday, I continue to take you back to that scene uh, with our youth. I think it is helpful. I pointed to a tall palm tree on our property, and I said to to the youth, I said to them, if one of those palm fronds fell from the tree right now and came crashing down, that would be an event that we would all take notice of, right? If it happened, that would be an event that we all take notice of. But if I were to say to you, in 10 seconds, a palm frond will fall from that tree and land right over there in a particular way, and then I begin to count down, 10, 9, 8, 7, and so on, and then it happens, that's a different thing altogether, wouldn't you agree? That would really get your attention. The palm frond falling from the tree would get our attention in a particular way. We would take notice of that event. But if it happened just as I said it would happen, according to my prediction, you would be astonished. You would think that I was some kind of prophet or something like that. And I'm saying to you that all of these events that took place surrounding the birth of Christ and during His life, and certainly as it pertains to His death, burial, and resurrection on the third day, they happened. Miraculous things happened. But they happened in fulfillment to the Holy Scriptures. We must take notice of this, brothers and sisters. We must see the way in which Luke seeks to move us from a place perhaps of doubt to a place of certainty. He presents us with these two things. He tells us these miraculous things happened, but they happened in fulfillment of promises, prophecies, types and shadows that were revealed to us under the Old Testament time and in the Old Testament Scriptures. By the way... That is why Luke uses the word accomplished in verse 1 of chapter 1 of his gospel. He does not merely provide us with an account of things that happened when Jesus was born. He lived, died, and rose again and ascended to the Father's right hand. No, he tells us about the things that were accomplished. Do you see the difference? There's a difference between things that happened and things that were accomplished. That is to say, fulfilled or brought to completion. From the beginning of Luke's Gospel to the very end, this is how he moves us from a place of doubt to a place of certainty. Now, with all of that as an introduction, let us go now to our text for today. Luke 1, 67-80. Here in this text we find the words of the prophecy of Zechariah, uttered after his tongue was loosed following nine months of muteness. No longer is he doubting, instead he is very certain. What produced the change? Clearly he pondered the miraculous things that were happening to him and those he loved. And by the time we are finished today, I think you will agree with me that Zechariah also pondered the Old Testament Scriptures very carefully to see if it was true that this child in Mary was the long-awaited Messiah. For his prophecy is saturated with the Old Testament. We will not have the time, partly because of the prolonged introduction of this sermon, but we will not have the time to chase down every Old Testament quotation and allusion. I'll need to be selective. I'll present all of this to you in three points. One, Zechariah was certain that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised son of David. Two, Zechariah was certain that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised son of Abraham. And three, Zechariah was certain that his son, John, was the long-awaited prophet who would prepare the way for this Messiah. First, Zechariah was no longer doubting, but certain that Jesus, the child in the womb of the Virgin Mary, was the Messiah, the promised son 
of David. This is what Zechariah expresses in verses 68 through 71. Picking up now in verse 67, and John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. I want you to notice a few things about this text. One, Zechariah was said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that he was regenerated or drawn to saving faith at this moment. Though it is true that Zechariah doubted the word that the angel delivered to him in the temple, I trust that he did have saving faith long before this moment. He trusted in the promised Messiah long before all this happened. That is why Luke describes him as a righteous and blameless man. He did not doubt that the Messiah would one day come, but he did doubt that he was coming then and that he and his son would be involved in preparing the way. When the text says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, it does not mean that he was at that moment saved, justified, or declared righteous, but that he was moved by the Spirit in an unusual way to utter this marvelous prophecy. He was filled by the Holy Spirit to utter this marvelous prophecy which we are now considering. Two, Zechariah began his prophecy by blessing or giving thanks to, to the Lord God of Israel. Beyond the fact that thankful praise was the fitting and reasonable response to the marvelous things the Lord was doing, Zechariah does also focus our attention on the Lord's dealing with Israel under the Old Covenant when he uses these words. As you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. He entered into a covenant with humanity through Adam. Adam fell, and all humanity fell in him. But God promised to provide a Redeemer. And in the course of time, it was clarified that this Redeemer would emerge from one particular nation, namely Israel. The promises concerning the Messiah were given to Israel by way of covenants. And when the time had fully come, the Messiah was brought into the world through Israel. But the Messiah is not Israel's Messiah alone. No, Israel was called to share their Messiah with all people, that is to say, with all nations. All who have true faith in Him, from amongst the Hebrews and Gentiles, are the true Israel of God, therefore. So, when Zechariah said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he gives thanks to the covenant Lord for all that He had done from the days of Abraham onward to bring the Messiah into the world in fulfillment to these covenant promises. 3. Beginning with the word for in the middle of verse 68, Zechariah explains why he was compelled to bless the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he says, for He has visited and redeemed His people. The words visited and redeemed should immediately remind us of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. When Moses returned to Egypt after encountering God in the bush that was burning yet not consumed, he told the Hebrews what the Lord had said. And in Exodus 4.31 we read, And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. From this time onward, 
the language of visitation is meant to remind us of all that God did for Israel to redeem them from Egyptian bondage and to lead them as captives set free. When Zechariah blessed the Lord God of Israel for visiting his people, he was confidently asserting that the Lord was doing something in his day like what he had done in Moses' day. He was drawing near to his people to act. He was drawing near to keep promises previously made. And the word redeemed should remind us of the Exodus as well, for that is the very thing that God did for Israel through Moses. He redeemed them from bondage. He defeated their oppressors to set them free. He led them out of Egypt, entered into a special covenant with them, and led them into the land of promise. When God visited His people in the days of Moses, He did so to redeem them. And when Zechariah uses these two words together, he was confessing, in the only way he knew how, that God was about to visit His people to accomplish a much greater redemption in fulfillment to promises previously made. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, how this works? What I am saying to you is that in the New Testament Scriptures in general, and in, in particular in this passage, very choice words are selected. Very choice words are used that are meant to, to link us up with the Old Testament Scriptures. They're, they're, they're meant to, to function, I've used this word before uh, as a kind of analogy, they're, they're meant to function as hyperlinks. You know what hyperlinks are, don't you? When, you, when you're a Using a PDF document or something, there might be hyperlinks in that document. One word, if you click on it, will take you to another resource. Uh, we do this as we browse the internet. You cl- click on one link and it takes you to a whole other place. And the scriptures function in this way. When, when Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he's reminding us of the entire history of Israel and how the Lord had used them and the covenants that he entered into into with him. And when he uses the word visited and redeemed, these words are loaded words. They are hyperlinks of sorts. They're meant to take us back to the Exodus. This one word should cause us to remember this entire episode in the history of redemption. Remember that the Lord drew near to do something powerful for his people in the days of Moses. And what did He do? He, he redeemed them. He set them free. He led them on towards the promised land. This one word, visited, and this one word, redeemed, especially when they are set together, they're meant to cause all of that to, to emerge in our minds so that we might better comprehend what it was that God was doing through Jesus the Messiah. Is this clear to you? It's phenomenal, isn't it, how the Scriptures work? By the way, will you notice any of this if you do not read the Old Testament? No. You'll, you'll understand basically what is being said. You'll get the gist of it. You'll come to perhaps a, an appreciation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is sufficient for salvation. I do not doubt that. But you will miss the richness of Holy Scripture if you do not read the Old Testament. The New Testament is not a fresh start, but rather it is the fulfillment of that which was done previously. And you can see it here in Zechariah's prophecy as he begins to use these choice words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed His people. Zechariah here is saying, I know what is happening. 
The Lord is about to keep His promises. He's about to accomplish a second exodus, a greater exodus, a greater act of redemption. Did Zechariah know what exactly Jesus the Messiah would do to accomplish our redemption? No, not at this point. He did not know it. In fact, he would not live to see the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Um, But he knew that it would be something like what was done previously. Uh, That is the point. I I want you to think for a moment about how much greater the second exodus accomplished by Christ was than the first exodus accomplished through Moses. Many comparisons could be made. I'll make only two. One, God visited His people in the first exodus through Moses. He visited His people in the second exodus through the incarnation of the eternal Son. Have you thought of that? How did God visit His people In the days of Moses, he did it through Moses. Moses was a kind of mediator between God and man. And what God did in those days was very powerful, of course. He visited his people in a very powerful way. He showed himself powerful in the first exodus. But God visited his people in a much more intimate way when he came to accomplish this second exodus. He visited his people through the incarnation, the eternal Son or Word of God, became incarnate. And this is how our salvation was earned. It's marvelous to to consider. The eternal Son of God took on flesh. The eternal Word of God tabernacled amongst us in the person of Jesus Christ. Two, the redemption was far greater. Given that I've recently taught about these things, I will say only this. The redemption accomplished through Moses in the first exodus was earthly. And and temporal. The redemption accomplished by Christ in the second exodus was heavenly, spiritual, and eternal. Through Christ, God has delivered us, that's redemption language, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That is Colossians 1.13. My fourth observation about verses 67 through 71 is this. Zechariah understood that this redemption that the Lord was about to accomplish through the Messiah was in fulfillment of the promises made to David, the greatest king of Israel, the anointed king of Israel. All of Israel's kings were said to be anointed to fulfill their office, but David is the the supreme one. And this is stated in verses 69 through 71, which says, And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Horns symbolize power and might. When Zechariah blessed the Lord because he raised up a horn of salvation, he was expressing his belief that the long-awaited Messiah was a king, and a powerful king at that. This Messiah king would save his people from the hand of their enemies, not Egypt or Rome, not Pharaoh or the emperor, but from Satan himself and all who serve him. And this was in fulfillment of the promises made to King David, who was a type of the Messiah to come. God spoke to David, saying, When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. 
and I will establish his kingdom. I continue to quote 2 Samuel 7. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And a bit later in the same passage, he said to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Do you hear this promise that was delivered to King David in Old Covenant times? It's a very important promise. Everyone who lived from those days onward from amongst the people of Israel had this expectation, therefore, that a king is going to arise who's going to, with strength, conquer all of our enemies and establish a kingdom that will never end. David was the greatest of Israel's earthly kings. He was used by God to defeat the enemies of Israel and to establish the kingdom on earth. But God promised him that one of his sons would establish a kingdom that would never end. This son would sit on his throne forever and ever. This son was not Solomon, who was the next to sit on the throne of Israel. But Jesus Christ, though Zechariah did not know the details of how this eternal kingdom would be secured, he knew it would happen and that it would happen very soon through the Virgin Mary's own son. And so he blessed the Lord for raising up this horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David in fulfillment to the promises previously made. Yes, these promises were made by God to King David, but notice what Zechariah says in verse 70. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So he, he makes reference to other prophecies too that have to do with this coming son of David, this horn that would be raised up in the house of David to bring redemption. The prophets also spoke about this coming Messiah, and Zechariah makes mention of this fact here. What prophecies did Zechariah have in mind? Well, there are very many, in fact, but I want you to consider only these. Ezekiel 29.21 On that day... I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them, then they will know that I am the Lord. That is Ezekiel 29.1. So the people who heard Ezekiel's prophecy from that day forward were expecting this coming horn, this powerful kingly figure who would bring redemption. Jeremiah 23.5-6 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. So again, uh, the people of Israel, who lived from Jeremiah's day onward, were expecting this coming king, this righteous branch, who would sprout from the root of Jesse, or David. Finally, consider Psalm 132, 7-18, which we already read today at the beginning of the sermon. Therefore, excuse me, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. When Zechariah says these words, as the Lord has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets, he has reference to these prophecies and to many others. He's saying that these things that are now happening are happening in fulfillment to the promises made to David and the promises delivered to the people of Israel through the prophets of old. Zechariah knew that these things were taking place even before his very eyes. The second point of the sermon is this. 
Zechariah was certain that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised son of Abraham. And I will not need to take much time to develop this point, for it should be evident to all given what has already been said. It's the same principles, but just pushed back further into the history of redemption. And in verses 72 through 75, we read, "...to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days." So notice a few things about these verses, verses 72 through 75. One, this portion of Zechariah's prophecy traces the promises that were entrusted to Israel concerning the Messiah back further into the history of redemption, back further past David's time and deeper into the history of redemption. These covenant promises were entrusted to Israel long before the covenant that was made with King David, They were even entrusted to Israel before Moses' time in the covenant that was made with Israel in his day. Indeed, the very first promises entrusted to this people, that is to say to the Hebrew people, to the Israelites, they were made to Abraham. To state the matter differently, the original covenant that God made with the Hebrew people was transacted with Abraham, as recorded in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. The covenant made with Israel in the days of Moses, as recorded in Exodus, was an outgrowth, an advancement of that original covenant. And the same may be said of the covenant that was made with David, as recorded in 2 Samuel 7. You see, these covenants made with the people of Israel in Moses' day, and the covenant that was made with King David, they are an advancement of covenants previously made, namely the one that was made with Abraham, Long before. Zechariah knew this. He knew that each of these covenants was organically connected. As it pertains to the covenants made with Israel, the Abrahamic covenant was the seed, the Mosaic covenant was the young plant, the Davidic was the tree, and this tree came to full maturity and fullness in Jesus Christ and in the new covenant that was made through his shed blood. Zechariah knew this. And so he rejoiced that the son of David had come to accomplish a second and greater exodus. And he knew that all of this would be in fulfillment to the promises made to Abraham long before. Two, notice that Zechariah again speaks of deliverance. He knew that the Messiah, the son of David and son of Abraham, had come to deliver God's people, not from earthly powers for a limited time, but from spiritual powers for eternity. Three, he elaborates here on the reason for our deliverance. The Messiah came to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Why has Christ redeemed you? Brothers and sisters, I ask you, why has he redeemed you? Why has this horn that has been raised up in the house of David, why has he accomplished salvation? Why has he redeemed you? The answer that Zechariah gives is so that we might serve the Lord without fear. If this was true of the first Exodus, which it was, you may see Exodus 3.12, 4.23, 7.16, and other places too. In each of these texts and many more, it is said that Israel was to be set free from bondage to Egypt so that they might worship and serve the Lord. And I am saying if it was true of the first Exodus 
then how much more is it true of the second exodus? You have been set free from bondage to sin, Satan, and the fear of death and judgment, not to serve yourself and to live for the things of this world, but to worship and serve the Lord. Have you been set free in Christ if you have faith in Him? Yes. Well, set free to do what? Not to live for your own pleasure. You've been set free from bondage to sin so that you might worship and serve the Lord. Four, notice also the words of verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. This speaks to what the Messiah would do for His people. Through His obedient life and sacrificial death, He would make all who have faith in Him holy and righteous before the Lord. We are not holy and righteous by nature, but through faith in the Messiah we are made to be holy and righteous. In Christ our sins are washed away and His righteousness is given to us. All of this is received by faith alone. And given the new life that the Spirit has given to those who believe, we do then progressively walk in righteousness and holiness more and more. When God sent the Messiah into the world through the womb of the Virgin Mary, it was to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Brothers and sisters, can you envision it? Think of Zechariah in the temple, ministering in the holy place. The angel Gabriel himself appears to him and says, Zechariah, the time has come. The Messiah is about to be born. You're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. He's going to prepare the way for him. He doubts. He's made to be mute for nine months. But after nine months of muteness, he emerges a man who is now no longer doubting but confident. He knows that the Messiah is here. This long-awaited Messiah who was promised to Abraham, who was promised in the days of Moses, these promises being entrusted to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant, uh, and the one who was promised to King David, he is here. Zechariah is so very sure of this. The third and final point of the sermon today is this. Zechariah was certain that his son John was the long-awaited prophet who would prepare the way for the Messiah. As we read in verses 76 through 79, I think we should imagine Zechariah looking at his newborn son, for he speaks to him. Can you envision the scene? Perhaps at first Zechariah has his eyes lifted heavenward as he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. But here at this point in the text, he looks down and he speaks to his own son. And you, child, he says, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace." There are many prophets who ministered under the Old Covenant. But the Old Testament scriptures also spoke of a single prophet who would one day come and have the distinct privilege of preparing the way for the Messiah. Consider Malachi 3.1, which says, 
Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah understood that his son John was this messenger. He was the prophet who was set apart to prepare the very way for the Messiah. Notice this. His job was to prepare the way for the Lord Himself. That's a pretty amazing way of putting it, don't you think? This makes perfect sense when we realize that Jesus the Messiah was no mere man, but was the Lord of glory, the eternal Son or Word of the Father incarnate. When John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah, he was preparing the way for the Lord Himself. And how would John the Baptist prepare the way for Him? How? By giving the knowledge of salvation to God's people and the forgiveness of their sins. And do not forget how John preached. He preached this way. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He spoke to the people of Israel, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And why was John able to proclaim this message of salvation for the forgiveness of sins? Answer, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Why was John able to proclaim this message and to prepare the way for the Messiah? Because of the Lord's mercy, because of the Lord's grace. And we should probably also ask this question, who are these who are said to sit in darkness and in the shadow of death upon whom the light of Christ has shone with the brightness of the noonday sun. Well, in general, they are all those who have not believed in the good news of Jesus Christ. They sit in darkness, the darkness of their sin, and they languish fearfully in the shadow of death. When the gospel of Christ is preached to them, it shines like a light in the darkness as the Spirit works. But in particular, those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death upon whom the light of Christ has shone are the Gentile nations. They are the Gentile nations. Consider this, brothers and sisters. For a very long period of time, the promises of God concerning salvation through faith in the Messiah were confined mainly to Israel. Can you think back into the history of redemption? Uh, You and I live under the New Covenant Indeed, the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone to the ends of the earth, and we, in fact, are uh, recipients of that, of that great blessing, of that grace. But prior to the coming of Christ and prior to the establishment of the new covenant, these promises, these prophecies, these types and shadows that pointed forward to the coming Messiah, they were confined mainly to one nation on earth. That is to say, the nation of Israel. And the nations outside of Israel, for the most part, were left in darkness. They did not have access to this gospel, the good news of the coming Messiah. But that all changed when Christ came. He came to bring light to those who had previously sat in darkness. These Gentile nations that were in darkness for so long would have the light of the gospel come to them. And that is why Christ commissioned His disciples in this way, saying, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The gospel was to go to all nations. Indeed, this very 
um, development was predicted ahead of time by the prophets. Isaiah 9.2 says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. This is one of the prophecies that Zechariah is referring to. He is saying that the prophets spoke about this, and now the time has come. It was true that these lands were once lands of darkness, but the Messiah has come and the light of the gospel is going to go to them. Consider also Isaiah 42, 6-7, a very beautiful text. Here the Lord speaks through Isaiah the prophet and to the Messiah. It's an interesting passage. You have God speaking to the Messiah. Listen carefully to what is said. I am the Lord. I have called you, that is to say the Messiah, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Zechariah knew the, knew the Old Testament scriptures. He knew these prophecies. And he was confessing in this moment that the time had come. The, the Messiah was being brought into this world. And when he came into this world, having accomplished his work, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine uh, upon even the nations that were for so long left in darkness. Zechariah was at this point in his life certain that his son, whose name is John, would prepare the way for this Messiah. Verse 8, he says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Please allow me to conclude now by offering a few very brief suggestions for application. They will be very brief. One, as we grow in our certainty that Jesus was and is the Lord's Messiah who was promised from long ago, let us join Zechariah in expressing our deep thankfulness and gratitude towards the Lord God of Israel for the great salvation that He has worked for us through Him. You can almost hear it in Zechariah's voice as you read, This man is giving praise to God. He is blessing God. He is erupting with Praise and thankfulness to God for this great mercy that He has shown. And as we grow in our confidence, just as Zechariah grew in his, may our thankfulness to God grow and grow concerning the great redemption that has been accomplished for us through Jesus the Messiah. Two, as we grow in our certainty that Jesus was and is the Lord's Messiah, who has freed us from all our enemies and has forgiven us of all of our sins, if we have faith in Him, let us worship and serve Him all the more faithfully in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. He has redeemed you if you have faith in Him. But He has redeemed you so that you might serve Him, so that you might worship Him, so that you might walk before Him in holiness and in righteousness. Three, as we grow in our certainty that Jesus was and is the Lord's Messiah who was promised from long ago, let us be all the more zealous to proclaim the good news of salvation through faith in Him to those who are now sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Here in this place we must proclaim this gospel, for there are many who are sitting in darkness even now in this place. 
And also we must be concerned that this gospel, that the light of the gospel be proclaimed to the furthest reaches of the earth, even in those lands where the gospel has never been proclaimed before. Perhaps I'll make one final and brief point of application by way of uh, total conclusion. Brothers and sisters, please do not grow tired of preaching like this that you have just heard. Detailed, yes? A bit tedious. The application is given at the very end. But this is how Luke's gospel must be preached if it is to be preached truly. For this is the point of Luke's gospel. I could have taken a different approach. I could have, I don't know, encouraged you to be more like Zechariah in this way or that and skipped all of this tedious detail making the connections for you between what he says and the Old Testament scriptures. But I think we would be missing the point of Luke's gospel entirely if presented in that way. I trust that you do crave this kind of preaching and brothers and sisters, you enjoy it, you're here probably for this reason, but let us not grow tired of this kind of preaching. We must consider the scriptures with great care and I do believe that it will produce fruit in our lives. It will produce the kind of certainty that Luke intends for us to have. He wants us to have certainty. He wants us to have strong faith. He wants us to live for Christ. Yes, it is true. But look at the care he has taken to set Christ before us to show that he indeed is the long-awaited Messiah, the one who was promised from long ago. Let us bow for a word of prayer now. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the Holy Scriptures, which are so rich, so filled with truth, so beautiful. Help us, O oh God, to love your word, to study it carefully. But I do pray, O oh Lord, that your word would not only fill our minds with truth, but that your word would captivate our hearts and produce godly living within us. Uh, Father, may we be moved along with Zechariah to live a life of worship before you, to praise you, to give you thanks, to live a life of holiness in the service of your name. God, we do pray that your kingdom would be advanced here in this place and to the ends of the earth. We thank you that Jesus was sent to save not just the Hebrew people, uh, but also the nations who had fallen into sin in Adam. You are a gracious and merciful God. May we be eager to proclaim Christ crucified and risen and the salvation that is available through faith in Him. Help us, O Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.